So I'm going to be reading the passage out of the NIV, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath from the four winds, breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. My section of today's service is called Psychological Horror. The book of Ezekiel, it's one of those books of the Bible that we know takes up a lot of space in the Old Testament, but we kind of stay away from it because there's a lot of weird stuff in it, like feces and blood, and Ezekiel does some weird things, and there's chapter after chapter after chapter of judgment on Israel. It's just more comfortable if we avoid the whole book of Ezekiel. But these 14 verses are often the first thing that comes to mind when we think of the book of Ezekiel. We cannot take these 14 verses, though, and separate it from the whole book, this messy book of Ezekiel. So what is this book all about? What is going on behind the scenes? This prophetic book is a collection of God's critique of Israel spoken through a man named Ezekiel. To get a sense of what led up to Ezekiel's time, 600 BC, we need to talk briefly about the covenant that Yahweh established with Israel. The covenant was basically that Israel would be God's blessed people representing Yahweh 
to the rest of the nations. The covenantal blessing was dependent on their obedience, and if they disobeyed Yahweh, they would be met with curses. Deuteronomy 28 lays out Yahweh's blessings and curses based on their obedience or disobedience, and the curses pile up one after another, finally culminating in this terrible curse of the loss of the land. The land of Israel was the actualized physical blessing that Yahweh gave to Israel. So the worst curse that could happen would be the loss of the land. Yahweh's covenant with Israel is the overarching backdrop backdrop of Ezekiel. And you fast forward to 100 years before Ezekiel's time, the nation of Israel had already separated into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been exiled by the Assyrians. They were, if you read First and Second Kings and Chronicles, you get the sense that Israel was really bad. They had no good kings, the Bible says. Judah, the southern kingdom, in comparison to Israel, seemed to be better. There were some good kings, some bad kings. But they were not in right relationship with Yahweh. They had obedient seasons and also disobedient ones. A hundred years before the exile, Judah had an evil king named Manasseh. And he was really, really bad. He was compared to King Ahab, who we know is the chief bad king of the Bible. Manasseh went so far as to build altars to other gods in Yahweh's own house. 2 Kings 21.9 says, Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Manasseh took Judah in a direction that would inevitably bring about the curses of the covenant, of breaking the covenant. A few years after Manasseh died, there was a king, Josiah. Now, he is most popular for becoming king at age eight and then also discovering the book of the law, which contained the blessings and covenants that we kind of touched on. Josiah really tried to undo all the evil that Manasseh had set up. It seemed like Judah was on the right track. But after Josiah died, Judah fell right back into its own ways. Idolatry, wickedness, injustice. So when you look at Judah's full history, Judah was not too different from the northern kingdom of Israel. So not only were Yahweh's people unstable at this point in history, but the surrounding countries were also extremely unstable. Babylon had taken over Assyria and were squashing any uprisings that the Egyptians were presenting. And Babylon took over Judah. They set up a vassal king, Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, a few years after the Babylonian rule, rebelled against Babylon. And Babylon responded by squashing Jehoiakim and taking a first wave of exiles into Babylon. Ten years later, there was a second Jewish rebellion. And Babylon responded with destroying Jerusalem, burning the temple, and exiling the majority of the Israelite population. Between these two occurrences of exile, span of 10 years, the Israelites, the exiles, and those in Jerusalem believed that the temple would not fall. It was impossible. The popular prophets at the time were proclaiming a false hope that Jerusalem would remain in glory and Yahweh was still with his people. 
Ezekiel's call to be a prophet happened in the middle of these 10 years. And the majority of his message, the first half of his book, is addressing this mindset, this false optimism that the Israelites had. Ezekiel's message communicates that Yahweh's presence already left Jerusalem. There was a coming judgment that would utterly gut Judah. And these prophecies were realized in the destruction of the temple and the burning of Jerusalem. This is not comfortable stuff that we're dealing with, and it's not meant to be. It was meant to shock the Israelites into seeing the reality of their sin and shock them into repentance. After this devastation occurred, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, Ezekiel's prophecies shift, no longer describing a horrible judgment, but now responding to the fundamental questions that the exiles were facing. And our passage today is one of these messages, these post-destruction, exiled Israelite population. The exiles were in a severe identity crisis. They not only experienced violent trauma, but their belief system literally burned down in front of them. Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Ezekiel, calls their situation psychological horror. So much of what provided identity to the Israelites was destroyed. The land stripped away from them. The Davidic kingship, humiliated and subservient to Babylonian rule. And the physical manifestation of Yahweh's presence with them was destroyed. Their situation, psychological, emotional, physical, spiritual, is difficult for me personally to grasp. When I think of America's collective story, of which I am a part of, it's not like that. It's one of resilience. We experience traumatic events like 9-11 or mass shootings, but we bounce back from that, for good or for bad. Defeat is not to be found in the American narrative. And perhaps that mindset that we have collectively as Americans is perhaps what Judah had before the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, though bad things happen, we will be okay. Yahweh is with us. Our destiny is secure. But the destruction that happened to Jerusalem and the temple and Yahweh's chosen people was destroyed. That eternal promise Can we fathom a situation like that? Perhaps in our own lives, there were commitments, jobs, beliefs, relationships that were supposed to last forever, but did not. For Judah, their identity, security, and hope were no longer guaranteed. Their fate as Yahweh's chosen people seemed not to be their reality. Was the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, a sign that Yahweh was defeated by Babylonian gods? Was Yahweh weak, not actually reigning above the nations as we thought? Is Yahweh incapable of protecting us, his chosen people? Or was this terrible devastation indeed a judgment delivered by Yahweh himself, as Ezekiel said? Was it actually our sin, not our ancestors' wickedness, our sin, my sin, that
that brought on Yahweh's judgment. Does this mean that Yahweh has given up on us? If the worst of the curses has now occurred, is Yahweh's covenant with us broken? The Israelites were in a place of hopelessness and defeat, and this is the attitude that Yahweh, through Ezekiel, is addressing in this passage of dry bones. My homily is called, As Good as Dead. Ezekiel, priest of God, exiled, prophet of God, captive in Babylon, prophet to Jerusalem under siege, 22 years as a mouthpiece of God, visions and oracles, 22 years acting out God's divine word in prophetic symbolism, living in the presence of God, but despised by people, watchmen announcing divine judgment, watchmen announcing future hope. His prophetic focus was uniquely on Israel, Israel as a holy people of a holy temple, the holy city, the holy land. By defiling her worship, Israel had become unclean, unholy, and defiled the temple, the city, and the land. In his third vision, Ezekiel is transported to a valley strewn with dry bones, old bones, dead bones, dry bones, absolutely no life, representing Israel, dead as a nation, no longer a people. And God says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones become living people again? As Ezekiel looks at the heaping pile of bones, I wonder if he saw himself as a failure. Years of prophesying, years of agonizing, and to what end? Dead, dry bones. At the end of his imagining and hope, I hear a sigh. O sovereign Lord, you alone know the answer to that. Speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of God. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. The first prophecy ends with a familiar statement from the book of Ezekiel. And then you will know that I am the Lord. The sovereign Lord's message is clear. Any new life is God's doing. As Ezekiel prophesies, the bones come together with a great rattling noise, bone to bone, ligaments creating joints, deep muscles, superficial muscles, skin. Ezekiel watches as bones join bones and bodies are formed. This image is not entirely reassuring. It reminds me more of a zombie apocalypse, the undead dead. In other prophetic images of restoration, there is dancing and singing, and rejoicing when old things are made new and dead things made alive. But here, the dry bones, while formed into whole bodies, are just there. I'm reminded of Genesis 2-7, where God molds and perfectly forms Adam, sculpted from dust and dirt. But bodies without breath are not alive. God breathes into Adam and he becomes living. 
In scripture, when we hear four winds, it's describing the divine touching the natural. It is God's power being made manifest into the world. And God says to Ezekiel, speak a prophetic message to the wind, son of man. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. Wind, breath, spirit, life. In verses 11 to 14, God explains the vision to Ezekiel. The dry bones represent the whole house of Israel and their complaint. Our bodies, I'm sorry, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. Our nation is finished. These bones are not the ones who were killed during the two-year siege of Jerusalem. These are not the bones of those who died of starvation or sickness or in battle. These are the ones who survived in exile. They believe that they are cut off from God's presence. They believe that the covenant is severed and David's eternal kingship is undone and they are cut off from their land. And the temple, their symbol of God with us, the very presence of God, utterly destroyed. For the exiles being cut off from God means that they are as good as dead. So, If the dry bones represent the living exiles, then this entire vision is not concerned with the reality of death, but of despair. The exiles are the survivors, yet they have dug their graves with their fear of God's absence. Into this this hopelessness, Ezekiel offers a shockingly simple metaphor of divine presence, the ready availability of breath. In just 14 words, the word ruach occurs nine times. It is translated as breath, wind, and even God's own spirit. And we would lose the metaphorical force if we neatly divided the words. Whether ruach is translated in one place as breath, another as spirit, or in another as wind, it is all the same life-giving force. It is all from God. And it is this sense that breath and breathing become a metaphor for divine presence. This divine breath that brought Adam to life can breathe life into dead bones. And just like all of Israel's history, it is God initiated. God chose Israel, an unknown people, a slave nation, and gave them his own law. He brought them to a good land with little cooperation from them. And God takes the initiative again. God's spirit will bring new life to a people who are dead as stone, dead as bones. And Ezekiel has already told them this twice. Ezekiel chapters 11 and 36 say this, And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit, a new ruach, Within them, I will take away their stony, stubborn hearts and give them a tender, responsive heart. And chapter 36 says, I will put my spirit, my ruach in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. 
If you do so, you will live in Israel, the land that I gave your ancestors long ago, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. God brings utterly dead, dry bones together. The bones can't help. God attaches ligaments, tendons, and muscles to make them strong, skin to give them form. But it is only when God tells the prophet to speak the ruach, the spirit or breath, that the spirit breath blows from the four winds and the bodies live and stand. God again is reminding Israel of his great love for them, that he has not abandoned them, that they are still his people, and he is still their life-giving God. title of this homily is Caught in the In-Between. He brought me out and showed me the mass grave, hundreds, thousands of fleshless carcasses scattered everywhere. They littered the landscape as though desolation just finished with a week-long festival and the cleanup crew had yet to arrive. The whitewashed ground filled with femurs and skulls and rib cages from the elderly and infant alike went on as far as my eye could see. There was no hope in the distant horizon. I knew how broad the destruction was as I scanned the surface, but I wondered also how deep the catastrophe sank into the brown dirt and into the red clay of the earth. Son of man, he called to me, can these bones live? I found myself frozen in time, caught in between a question and an answer, stuck in the middle of a call and response. I looked upon the multitude of massacre, but at first, I could only think of she, of her, my wife, the delight of my eyes. Were her remains out there in the desecration? Was her lifeless frame tossed and tormented, dispersed as part of those picked clean from the jackals and vultures? I remembered when I lost her and how God commanded me not to lament or weep or shed a tear, to groan quietly if there is such a thing, until a time came when I could open my mouth. Those around me asked, why are you acting like this? As I physically portrayed at the Lord's word, the wasting away of God's people because of sin. The delight of the people's eyes, the sanctuary, the temple, the land, was removed. Just as the delight of my eyes was taken away. Though now my hands are open and my jaw is loose, I can still feel the remnant of angst I carried back then. But then, back then, my clenched fists and gnashing teeth questioned Yahweh if he had truly ever delighted in anything at all, or if he had ever lost anything precious to him. I know the answer to that question now. And I find a strange solace in God knowing he gets what it's like to not always get what is purely desired. Son of man, repeated in my mind, can these bones live? I don't know, I pondered to myself, is resurrection possible? I mean, there was the prophet Elijah. He cried out to the Lord about the widow's son who died, that the child's life would come back into him again, and it did. And the prophet Elisha, too, 
there was that other boy who was dead for days. But then God, through Elisha, warmed the child's body and brought him back from the dead. But, but that's different, and this is different. Those were individuals, those were singularities, those were corpses that still had flesh on them and still resembled humanity and life, even if it was only superficially. This, this is different. This is a field, a legion of failure. This is decay run its course. These bones aren't newly dead. They've been this way for generations. Son of man, his words echoed once again, can these bones live? I don't know. I do not know. Can despair die? Can death be dethroned? Can hopelessness be upheaved? My heart is sick from thinking things can change. Hope takes its good old time in not showing up. I don't know that I even want to put myself in a place thinking that something could be transformed, imagining that something could be different than what is so evidently right in front of me. Doubting the circumstances at hand, but believing in the greatness of God, I snapped out of my time warp and answered as sincerely as I could with four words of surrender. Lord Yahweh, you know. And with that, the story as you know it unfolded. My friends in years to come have always argued with each other about if this vision was happening now or if it was an explanation of something that already happened or if it was to be something that was going to happen in the future. Is it, is it literal or is it allegorical? They would ask me. I would simply tell them that what I do know is that it's true and from the mouth and mind of Yahweh. And if that wasn't enough, nothing else would inspire hope and trust within us. They always roll their eyes and continue in their conversation. I now also know that Yahweh is a God who wants to fill things. Bones and breath belong together. Yahweh formed the first person and breathed life into him. Yahweh commissioned Adam and Eve to fill the earth with his own image. Yahweh told Noah to build an ark so he could fill it with salvation and recreation. Yahweh instructed Moses about the tabernacle and David about the temple so that his own presence could fill those spaces. Structure and vitality belong together in our lives. Yes, Yahweh is spirit, but he longs to inhabit. Yes, those that are born of the spirit are like the wind and that you don't quite know where it's coming from or where it's going. And yet the wind, the spirit of God, wants to dwell with humans in substance. God's breath doesn't just want to dissipate into nothingness. It desires to embody. Could one day our long-awaited Messiah bring about the fullness of Yahweh's divinity in physical form? I personally have seen the glory of God empty from the temple, and yet I feel deep in my own bones as though through an emptying of some type, Yahweh's presence might become flesh and commune with us in a way we have yet to know. And that through that dwelling, that the earth 
would be filled with the glory of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. I wonder about this. I also wonder, reminiscing back on the dry bones, what would have happened if I would not have prophesied when Yahweh told me to? Would those bones have come together? Would life have entered them? I know Yahweh is faithful to do all he has spoken. But I know that our, that my faithlessness vandalizes the land and invites chaos to reign. As the body without breath is dead, so also dependence on God apart from works is dead. This homily is called Flipping the Script, and it's interactive, so be ready. What do we do when God does something that we think is outside of his character? Something so unexpected that it turns upside down everything that we think we know about him and who he is, or more importantly, who we are in relation to him. What do we do when the Most High God, ruler of all creation and of all authority, flips the script on us? Like in Exodus, where scripture says that God repented from the punishment he had planned for the people of Israel for their iniquity with the golden calf. No, no, God doesn't repent. God doesn't need to repent. I repent. I am convinced and convicted by his rightness and by his position and thus change my direction and move to where he is, not vice versa. It doesn't work that way. That is not how I understand this whole God and man thing to work. I think I'll just turn the page of that script. Or in the Gospels, where Jesus walks on the raging waves and tells Peter to step out of the boat in the middle of the tempest and do the same thing. It's fine for Jesus to be waltzing on a hurricane. Terrific. Great even. That's totally consistent with who he is and his ability and his track record. But to tell me to do the same thing? No, that's not right. No, that will cause me to sink. Good thing that was Peter who so impetuously invited that nonsense. I'll comfortably turn that page too. Despite our lofty notions of self, when it comes to the script, we are actually quite comfortable knowing that God is God and we are not. We are fine with the notion that there are things that he is supposed to do that we are not. That there are aspects of him that we can never reach and probably shouldn't try that we stretch to meet him, that he does not conform to and comply with us. This comfort and understanding is, to us, a key component of the framework, of the boundaries, of the narrative that allow this divine relationship to make sense to us. This framework keeps us in our place, and maybe more importantly, if we're being honest, it keeps him in his. This is the script that we will gladly memorize. This is the supporting role that we will happily play. But God often seems to flip the script, like in Ezekiel 37. It's not the bringing of muscle and sinew and life itself to piles of ancient dry bones. As weird as that thing may be, that thing is also well within the nature of the God who formed man from dust and woman from a rib of that man. 
and who formed each of us in our mother's wombs. If we believe the latter things, there is nothing inconsistent with the former thing. Bone and muscle and sinew and blood and life are the medium of much of his art. That's just God being God and doing God things. What he did in Ezekiel was more subdued, but as earth-shaking as it was subtle, if we stop to consider the implications. It's right there in verse 9. Throughout the Bible, God spoke to his prophets and told them to speak to people, usually to warn them of God's portending wrath and to call them to repentance and back to seeing themselves, their world, and him the way that he sees them. In short, to bring man into alignment with God. But here, God instructs the prophet to speak to something or someone else. He says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath. The phrase itself feels like wind. Whisper it to yourself. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath. And the breath that God speaks of here is indeed the ruach. Ruach. Whisper that. Ruach. Ruach. The word itself sounds like breath. And it has many meanings, from, breath, from the breath of the lungs of living creatures to more complex connotations of mind, emotion, and spirit. Indeed, the ruach of Ezekiel 37 is the same ruach of Genesis 1, where the ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in Genesis 2, where the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostril the ruach of life. And the man became a living creature. Now whisper the phrase as if you aren't saying it at all. Rather, say it as if it is a command that you have received and are repeating to yourself as the voice of someone else, the someone else. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath. Does your heart leap? I'll bet Ezekiel's heart leapt when he heard that command, when the someone else told him to prophesy to the ruach, to the breath. Grasp the implication. Because here, God commands the prophet to prophesy to the very source of life itself, the breath that hovered over the face of the waters before creation itself, and the breath that brought life to Adam. Though reminding the prophet in the very same sentence that he is nothing but a mortal son of man, God thus also appears to command the prophet to prophesy to God. But wait, that's not the way this thing works, is it? The script just totally flipped. But what is prophecy but speaking the truth of God? What is prophecy but simply speaking what God has already spoken and is speaking now? When the prophets of old called the kings and kingdoms of that age to obey the Lord 
and implored the people to find their first love. These prophets were only speaking the truth of what God already most deeply desired. When Moses pleaded with God to remember his people and to relent from the destruction that he planned for them, Moses only spoke the truth to God that God first spoke to the people. They are yours. And so God, indeed, came to where Moses and his people were, and he changed his course to meet them. Yes, they are mine. Prophesy to the breath. When Peter spoke to Jesus and told his Lord to command him to leave the boat, Peter only spoke the truth of what Jesus already knew to be true about Peter, that Peter, too, could tiptoe on the typhoon. Call me a water walker. Yes, you are a water walker. Prophesy to the breath. All God has ever wanted of his prophets, indeed of his people, was that their spirits would connect to his own spirit. All God has ever wanted was for his people to desire what he desires, to speak what he speaks, so that he can give life to dry bones, so that he can calm raging storms, indeed, so that he can bind and loose in the spiritual world what we bind and loose on earth. Ultimately, that is the core of prophecy. Come to me, he says, and I will come to you. Speak to me, he says, and I will speak to you. Prophesy to the breath. So what do we do when God says to us that he will accomplish the fantastic and bring about the impossible? That he will give life to our structures that he will bring to life those things that have recently died or have been dead for so long, that he will do all of these things if only we would speak truth to him, if only we would connect our hearts to his heart, our minds to his mind, our spirits to his very ruach. What do we do? Prophesy to the breath. God desires to incarnate himself in our lives, by indeed bending to where we are and even conforming to and complying with what we ask of him when our spirits are connected in desire to his. That is entirely in the nature of who God is because more than anything, he wants us to know him fully and to be known by him in full. He has always and only desired to be one with us and has always bent to where we are, whether in the midst of conflict with him, or on the rolling and storm-tossed tides, or in our various valleys of dry and lifeless bones. He is like a father who just wants to hear his children say to him that they want what he wants, so that he can be with us where we are and do the things that he has always wanted to do. He is, after all, Abba. Daddy, can you do this? Yes, yes, my child, I can. I'm so glad you asked. Let's do this. In the end, that is fully consistent with what he did when he himself took on the same flesh and blood as man and woman and sacrificed that flesh and blood so that man and woman could commune with him and be brought from death to life, from the grave into glorious light. In fact, That was always the script. It never flipped. That's his covenant. Prophesy 
to the breath. From the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled with a sponge, with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake And all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray in benediction this morning together. If you could just take a posture of receiving with your hands out and open. And let's, if you're able to, to stand up. God, you... um, You are the story of death and resurrection. In you was breathed new life because you are spirit, Lord. And our story is the same. So we receive the good news again that breath is breathed and bones come alive. And life and victory in you is had, Lord Jesus. And so we lift our eyes. We lift our eyes. And we see you. And declare that we live with you. That like you, we are dead. And like you, we rise to new life. And we share your story. And the power from that story comes from you and through you, Lord Jesus not through something we have done, not through something we've developed, not through the strength of our mind or our will or our body, but through the power and authority that rests solely in who you are, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. And you invite us into that narrative, to that story that is real, and it lives through you, and it lives through us, Lord Jesus. And we receive that from you today again, And it flows through us to the death that is in our world, God, that this world might know the same story that is alive, Jesus. And so we thank you and we glorify you. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. And again, all God's people said, amen.